Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Welcome into this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of minor league baseball as uh, the band is back together. Tyler Vaughn, Sam Dykstra, Benjamin Hill. Fellas, how are you? What's going on? Uh, Pretty good. Tyler, did you... Start out with that intro saying the band is back together. Ah, I didn't actually. Our, uh, our and that's for the week in our in our uh, second consecutive day of uh, communicating about this show. Now we have each you and I made an unwittingly uh, tied in joke to the movie that thing you do. This is pretty good. Pretty good podcast synergy, Sam. Yes, it's almost like we planned this out, but we actually did not. We we don't have the means to do that. Um, we just appear to be after how many shows now, uh, on the same wavelength. Yeah, exactly. It only took us six years of this or whatever it is. Um, but we do have a a very fun interview coming up. Uh, I was not able to be a part of it. And on the one hand, I'm very disappointed in that. On the other hand, I'm really excited to just get to listen to this interview now, uh, as Benjamin Hill with us as well. Uh, Ben, what's going on? How are you? I'm doing all right. Yeah. I thought when you said the band got back together, uh, I thought it was B-A-N-N-E-D because we've all been ostracized from polite society. And, uh, That's true, too. Now the band are back <laughs> the, band, yeah. the band among us uh, back together. Um, it's uh, kind of a band-centric show this week, sort of, uh, but not a real band, a fictional band. The Wonders from Erie, Pennsylvania. They were the subject of uh, at least my most anticipated promotion of the year in Erie, PA, this past week, hosted by the AA Erie Seawolves. We'll talk about that coming up here in a little bit. The subjects of the uh, 1996 cinematic juggernaut, That Thing You Do. Uh, it has been 25 years since That Thing You Do came out, which uh, makes me feel a whole lot of things. But let's talk about other things as we get started on this week's episode of the official podcast of Minor League Baseball. Thanks for tuning in wherever you found us on your favorite podcast service. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription and uh, let us know what you think and uh, what you would like to hear about as we get closer to postseason time and all that stuff. You can get in touch, podcast at MILB.com. Um, but we're covering all things business of baseball. We're talking some on-field stuff a little bit later on in the show as well. And we are uh, going to kick things off with a story that uh, our good pal Ben has up on the site at MILB.com, which is uh, a, a story about uh, one of the most recognizable members of the Hickory Crawdads family and not necessarily a person that you would expect to be uh, that 
identifiable member. Ben, tell us about uh, the uh, baby Conrad who you uncovered in, in Hickory. Yeah, you know, I was in Hickory at this point, what, six, seven weeks ago. But uh, since I, my hours are reduced these days, um, as I'm on uh, you know, intermittent parental leave, I just keep getting the reach back in my road trip stash and write, write stories. So uh, it was good to go back and uh, revisit or visit this one from Hickory. Um, this is a story about Baby Conrad. And Baby Conrad is one of the team's mascots. Uh, officially, he is the uh, you know, baby child, the baby son of primary mascot Conrad and his wife, Candy. Although I believe they got married after they had the child and not judging, but um, Candy and Conrad had a child, baby Conrad later got married. Um, I find mascot, the domestic lives of mascots to be really interesting and the way that teams flesh those out or do not. Anyhow, baby Conrad, like his parents is a crawdad, you know, a crayfish, a crawfish, a crustacean, a mud bug. And I got to know Baby Conrad's you know, best friend, um, the person who brings Baby Conrad to life, the mascot performer, Alex Copeland, and he's 14 years old, and he's been doing this for years already. He does it on a volunteer basis. His mother drives him to every game. And uh, during the 2021 season, the Crawdads have often not had their primary mascot because of uh, a COVID-restricted clubhouse and uh, not having enough laundry space. You know, this is minor league baseball, folks. Like, sometimes you don't have a mascot because uh, there is not the ability to do laundry and, and launder the suits as much as is needed. So the team's most reliable mascot during the season has been Baby Conrad, brought to life by a 14-year-old kid, Alex, um, who's a really serious, studious, you know, nice kid. And I, I got to interview him uh, about why he loves being a mascot, what, him, what got him to be interested in the first place. Talked to his mom as well. I just kind of thought it was sweet. She's really proud of her son. And, and just the sacrifice she's making, and really, you know, the way moms do, um, you know, bringing her son to these games, you know, all throughout the season, especially on the weekend, uh, so that he can pursue this passion he has for being a mascot performer. And uh, these are the kind of stories I like to tell. So it's uh, baby Conrad and uh, the 14 year old kid who brings him to life, who's been doing it, uh, you know, in some for way, shape or form for virtually half of his 14 years on earth. He's been a mascot performer and um, is putting a lot of time and effort into it. And his mom's given him an assist and uh, the front office has always been really supportive and, uh, you know, soon we'll get a license and, you know, maybe be able to get hired and stop doing this on a volunteer uh, basis. And if it's something he wants to pursue, I mean, just think of, uh, you know, just have the, the amount of work he's gotten already and experience, uh, you know, through this, you know, puts him ahead of the game. You know, I think, think about the things that I love and, uh, you know, what if I gotten started in that earlier or had this kind of opportunity, no matter what it is. So it's cool to write about that and, uh, find, uh, you know, things in minor league baseball that are a little anomalous. You know, I, I, we've talked to who was probably the oldest mascot performer on this podcast uh, a couple months ago, 70-year-old uh, um, Tom Hunsicker. Hmm. I believe his name was Tom with the Reading Fighting Phils. And uh, now we're talking about a 14-year-old mascot performer. You know, always trying to find the oldest, the youngest, the most interesting. Running the um, gamut. Running the gamut. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, and one thing that stood out to me from your interview with him was this quote about him taking it serious. Like, it, I, you have to. It's a job. Like, he shows up. You should also mention he is 
volunteering to do this, but it goes towards like a high school requirement that he has to do volunteer work. So he's getting something out of it uh, for sure. But he was saying like, I have to take this seriously because if I wouldn't, if I didn't, like I wouldn't still have this job after all these years. Um, so what else stood out to you about just the conversations you had uh, with Alex Copeland? Well, I, I mean, I think it's interesting because I point out that he is very serious about this um, as something he wants to do, being a mascot performer, uh, suiting up as baby Conrad. Um, you know, but he has this one uh, quote that I include in the article. This is the one place where I can act how I want to be around people. They don't know who I am. I don't know who, really know who they are. For me, it just brings a different person out and I enjoy it. And I think that's an interesting point about being a mascot in general. But here's this kid, you know, who's, who's, who seemed to be fairly quiet, shy, reserved. And uh, then you find, as he said, the one place where I can act how I want to be around people, meaning you put on the mascot suit and you can be gregarious and say hello and do slap fives and uh, fist bumps and, um, and just be goofy in the life of the party. And, you know, that's hard for not just him, but for most of us to access in real life and have it come across as, um, you know, something that A, other people want you to be like, and then B, just, you know, often we're shy and introverted people. And uh, I think a lot of mascot performers, uh, you know, have that experience where who they are in day-to-day life might be very different than the personality they can access inside the suit. And I think that's one of many reasons it's a very interesting job. It's also kind of a hard job to write about because of, you know, do you call these people mascot performers? Do you say they're the mascot's best friend? There's a lot of, you know, tight-lipped, um, you know, policies in the mascot industry about, uh, you know, talking about the uh, mascots as if they are not wholly 100% real living beings all the time and not brought to life by a man in a suit. You know, a lot of teams, official stories is there is no suit. And I get that. And I don't want to ruin the magic, but sometimes I just want to tell the stories about uh, the people in the, in the suits. And it's hard to walk that line sometimes. I mean, we should be clear when you were talking about before about doing laundry, like these, these mascots are wearing clothes. They have laundry to do. Too. Right. It's just the, the clothes that the mascot wears, not yes. an entire suit. Um, so, you know, that, that turns you into someone else. I mean, this Conrad, this, he's just like an anthropomorphic uh, you know, six-foot-tall crustacean. And that's just who he is. And wears clothes and needs to do laundry every once in a while. Yeah. And if he can't do laundry, he doesn't want to be out in public. Yeah. That's you know, just like normal stuff. Yeah, it's that, identifiable. It's an identifiable problem. Um, guys, let's uh, continue this conversation with uh, Ben's next step on the road. Ben, you were actually set to go to Somerset uh, to visit the new AA affiliate of the New York Yankees a few weeks ago in a game that got rained out. It has since been a, uh, a long few weeks for the Somerset Patriots, whose ballpark was completely inundated by water um, when the remnants of Hurricane Ida went through the Northeast. Uh, but they are set to return home, and you are set to meet them there. Tell us about the trip to Somerset. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. I had originally scheduled to go to Somerset. And then because it was um, not part of a larger trip, just a standalone visit, you know, when the weather forecast didn't look good, I thought, oh, I'll postpone the visit. And they did play that night, but, you know, it was rainy and uh, the game was delayed. And, you know, I think it's for the best that I, I didn't go. But then one week after that, then real bad weather happened. And this ballpark, and you can go online and look, uh, TD Bank Ballpark, home of the Somerset Patriots, um, got absolutely deeply flooded last week uh, in the wake of Hurricane Ida. The ballpark is near the Raritan River uh, in central New Jersey. And, you know, there were some aerial shots circulating all over the internet where the entire field was flooded way up into the seating bowl. And I think your first thought when you see that is, 
this team's not playing again at home for the remainder of 2021. And that was just a week ago, uh, literally one week ago. And uh, as we're talking now, it was last Thursday, and here we are talking on the following Thursday. And now tomorrow, September 10th, eight days after the flooding, they are returning home for the final three games of their final homestand. And uh, to look at how the park was just so recently, and now to know that they're set to host games uh, is just a story in and of itself. So uh, one, I'm looking forward to going to Somerset because it's a ballpark I've not been to yet. That was an Atlantic League team for a lot of years. This is their first season as an affiliated team, double A with the Yankees. Uh, so I'm just looking forward to going to a ballpark I've never been. But now on top of that, there's this whole angle of how did you get this deeply, deeply flooded ballpark uh, back to playable conditions in the span of a week. It's a pretty remarkable story, but one that they do have uh, some precedence with. Um, I was talking with the team last week in um, Hurricane Floyd in 99 and Irene in, I believe, 2010 caused similar scenarios. So as much as it's a difficult and scary thing to go through, they've been there before. So I think that may be added to some of the confidence of, okay, we've, we know what we have to do and let's get it done. And fortunately they were able to. And that brings us to our conversation for this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, the Erie Seawolves, the double A affiliate of the Detroit Tigers just so happened to uh, call home the town that launched uh, one of the biggest fictional music acts of the 1960s in The Wonders, uh, the subject of the movie That Thing You Do. And uh, Erie, this past weekend, hosted a promotion, a salute to 25 years since the release of That Thing You Do. They welcomed back three members of the uh, the Wonders band from the movie. They did not get Ethan Embry to show up, which was due to real-world reasons, but is very fitting because there's a point uh, in the movie in which Ethan Embry just disappears from the band and ends up going to Disneyland and nobody knows where he is. So it's kind of fitting that Ethan Embry, the bass player in the, in the movie, did not show up. But guys, tell us about uh, who we're hearing from with Erie this weekend uh, in this conversation coming up. Yeah, that would be, I'd say, the mastermind of this promotion, the Erie Seawolves Wonder Night, uh, or certainly one of the masterminds, and uh, the man at the top of the uh, organizational front office hierarchy, team president Greg Coleman. Uh, who had a lot to say about uh, this promotion and uh, how special it was for the team and the community and how they were able to pull it off. Because as we talked about a number of times on this show uh, throughout this season, you know, haven't seen a lot of real premier promos for different reasons um, after, you know, 2020 didn't happen at all. And this season has been a mess in a lot of ways. So we haven't seen this type of promo very often where a team went all out, celebrated an anniversary, got some, uh, you know, big, big time guest list stars at the ballpark and pulled it off. So I think it's an interesting conversation that Sam and I had. And Tyler, we missed you every step of the way that you weren't able to have this conversation along with us. I was very bummed. Uh, but you, you were there in spirit. With, uh, <laughs> Greg Coleman of the Erie Seawolves, president of the Erie Seawolves, talking about Erie Wonders Night. Podcast. I've been 
along with Sam Dykster. I'm joined by a special guest, Erie Seawolves president, Greg Coleman. And Greg Coleman is here today to talk about Wonders Night, a uh, wonderful promotion that took place at an Erie Seawolves game last Saturday, September 4th. And it was all in tribute to that the movie That Thing You Do and that movie's famous band, a fictional band, The Wonders, who were from Erie, Pennsylvania. So uh, really exciting promotion. The team played as The Wonders. Uh, took a lot of work to put it together. First of all, Greg, thank you for being with us. I should have gotten that out of the way right away. But thank you. It's good to see you. Good to, good to have you on the show. And thanks for being here. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, always, always love to tell, talk about great promotional ideas and uh, we kind of like this one. We're pretty proud of this one. Yeah. And this one was in the works for a long time. I'm sure kind of at least bandied about in the front office for many years. You first uh, announced it as a more speculative thing on April 1st, 2020. And um, it kind of took off from there and became a real thing. And uh, I know you worked on it, you know, for a long time. So uh, take us through the process. How did the idea for this come about and uh, how did you start to put it together? Sure, Ben. Well, you, you mentioned that this is something that's been in the works for a while. Well, you know, I think the year-end promotional meetings that we have where we kick around ideas, it, it, I think it was probably the last cut on our promotional schedule about three times. And, and that was because it was always something random like, oh, it's the 21st anniversary of the movie or it just from a timing standpoint it didn't quite make sense or from a budget standpoint it didn't quite make sense but you know, when we all found ourselves at home during the the COVID shutdown and maybe with a little a little more time to be creative uh, I, I was just sitting there thinking to myself yeah you know what we're coming up on the 25th anniversary year soon uh, I don't know if we're going to be playing baseball this year or not but but we might have an opportunity to do something interesting here so I put together a graphic and I sent it off to our assistant GM of communications, Greg Gagne, and, and it basically mocked up what the Wonders jersey would look like. And I said, look, let's put it out today. If this is something that gains traction, then we do it. If there's something that just everybody yawns at, then, hey, April Fool's, we're not going to do it. But, uh, but immediately we put it out of the world and the response was just overwhelming. Uh, people who were just like, how can I get that jersey? I was like, hold on a second. I just made it on my computer this morning. Uh, like, <laughs> let's pump the brakes. Uh, but and we put it out there, and I, I think we thought it would be a good idea. I think we thought we were going to do it, but then some other circumstances, uh, you know, certainly made made it so that we would do it. Uh, and I'll, I'll start by saying that on um, on April first, uh, that same day that we put it out, uh, the gentleman who who wrote the song "That Thing You Do," Adam Schlesinger, uh, who who has many writing credits to his his name, and who uh, also uh, um, was in the band Fountains of Wayne, uh, was actually nominated for an Oscar uh, for Best Original Song for this. Uh, he, he passed away due to COVID. And at the time we put this out, we just, we had no idea, uh, which, uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm a big fan of Fountains of Wayne fan. So I, so I'm probably more in tune than most, but I, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that he was sick. And uh, later that evening he passed away. And, and it's sort of one of those things where, you know, hey, here's this great promotional idea. And all of a sudden it just went sideways really, really quickly. Uh, so I kind of I I recouped uh, or sorry regrouped and uh, put together a few words out on Twitter and said, hey, look, you know, we we didn't know, but you know, we we feel very strongly about doing this and we want the the legacy to live on, and and so we're going to do it. Well, I think, and I don't want to speak for them, but I think um, you know the actors, particularly Tom Everett Scott, had seen that and and had remarked about how I guess um, you know how nice that was to hear those words and and. 
I, I think right off the bat, we had built a really strong relationship uh, with with the actors because they knew that we we were going to do right by by them and 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 by by Adam and uh, and the movie. And so so that was how this whole thing started a very odd 24 hour period of time. Uh, and then we just had to sort of wait to see when anybody could venture out into the world. <laughs> and unfortunately, by the time 2021 came around, we had the opportunity. So um, so we. Once we got a schedule for this year, which was obviously you know a little bit later than normal, we started to take a look and and kind of guess well, hey, when 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 might we be able to gather again? What does that look like? You know, it's probably not going to be in May. It's not going to be in June. Uh, it turns out the you know, the anniversary of the movie was was in the fall, and so yeah, and we kind of thought the COVID caseloads would start to reduce a little bit by then, and so so we all agreed on a date on Labor Day weekend. It all worked out uh, for everybody. There was one small change at the end, but it worked out for everybody. And so, um, you know, it, it was pretty remarkable, but there were a lot of hoops we had to jump through before we got, uh, got to September 4th. Yeah. And one of the, uh, you know, the most remarkable aspects of the promotion is not only did you play as the wonders, but you, uh, initiated, got together a, a band reunion of this fictional band, uh, the wonders and, and got the actors, uh, who played those characters to the ballpark. Um, I'm sure that took quite a bit of wrangling to, to find a date that could work and uh, getting everyone on board uh, for that. So what was that like uh, in terms of, uh, you know, putting it together, whether it was actually going to be the band, The Wonders, while you were playing as The Wonders? You know, in some ways it was really hard and in other ways it was very easy. Uh, so we had to get across uh, one big hurdle first, which was that, you know, we don't own the intellectual property rights. So to be able to create a jersey that says Wonders, we had to get permission uh, from, from the folks who had that. Uh, in this particular case, it was uh, uh, the, the executives at Playtone, uh, Tom Hanks and Gary Getzman. Once we got across that hurdle, then we could have a conversation about getting the guys out to a specific date. And so, uh, so you've got actors who are, they're all working. They're all they're all working. Uh, you know, um, Steve Zahn just had the White Lotus that was out. Uh, Tom Everett Scott has been in a series of things. He's 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 filming something for Amazon Prime right now. Uh, yeah. So I mean, they, they all they all have stuff going on. And uh, we, we just um, they, they just all were committed to this idea for for whatever reason. Uh, there was no official 25th anniversary of this movie planned. Uh, and maybe it's because there's a lot of things that you might normally do in a normal year that this year just didn't rise to the level of happening. Right. Uh, and so the fact that we were willing to do it and the fact that these guys have remained friends, I mean, Tom Everett Scott, this was his first movie. Uh, and, and so these guys, you know, really bonded on the set. So the opportunity to, to, you know, come to Erie, Pennsylvania, a place that they actually had never been uh, to uh, come do a, a panel discussion on the movie and, and also to hang out with their friends for a couple of days. I mean, uh, it was an opportunity, especially coming out of COVID where you couldn't connect with anybody. It was an opportunity I think that they couldn't pass up. And, and we loved having the opportunity to be the, um, the venue for that. Yeah. And, and now that everything got to be set up, um, when actual Wonders Night happened, just take listeners through, what did that look like? You mentioned there was a panel. Um, the guys from the Wonders got to do a little bit of singing, but what did it look like when the day actually arrived? Well, it was uh, it was a pretty complete promotion. So the, the guys rolled into town on on Friday, and um, I tell you what, <laughs> just they had a ball. So so on the road, they're rolling into town and they're filming videos from the road from their road trip. 
Uh, and so they're getting everybody really, really excited for it. Uh, we had uh, we had a nice dinner uh, with with them on uh, on on Friday night, and then on Saturday uh, they they came to the ballpark, and we had a couple different pre-planned elements. So they had a, a VIP session where uh, where about 170 people were able to listen to this panel discussion. Uh, you know, we had uh, solicited questions about the about the movie that uh, our, our our moderator Greg Gagne had had asked. Uh, and so, you know, fans had a chance to kind of hear their questions asked of the actors. Uh, and then uh, then they did uh, meet and greet photos and, and autographs with the folks in that session. Then they went and they did a, a, an autograph session at concourse level uh, and and did that for about another 45 minutes. Uh, and then we worked them into the game presentation. So they uh, they did things like sing uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game during the seventh inning stretch. Uh, Steve Zahn took a turn on the public address. Um, you know, the, um, you know, the things like that the take me out to the ball game was was pretty cool because not only did they sing take me out to the ball game we followed that up with the, the song that thing you do which they performed uh now, now keep in mind right they're they're a band from a movie and they're very talented actors they're not necessarily very talented singers uh <laughs> but 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 it didn't matter when you had a couple thousand people that were there singing along with them it was it was what everybody came out to see um when we got done the the game presentation elements, uh, we prepared for a post game movie. So we had purchased the rights to play that thing you do on the video board after the game. So a lot of the fans stuck around and grabbed the lawn chair, grabbed the blanket uh, from their car, and came out and sat on the field and, and watched the movie. And uh, while that was going on, some of the folks that were still uh, who attended the VIP session uh, are some of our staff members. Uh, we actually watched the movie with those guys from our uh, our UPMC Park Stadium Club. And you want to talk about like the ultimate director's cut, right? You you you, you hear all the things uh, and that you see, you know that are on the Blu-ray and the commentary, but it's something different to be kind of next to Steve Zahn and, and having him tell you, oh, here's what was happening during that scene, and Ethan Embry really dropped the bass accidentally during that scene, and and it's like, man, this is this is a super director's cut, uh, and so. Uh, and then uh, on, uh, on on Sunday, they rolled out of town and they road tripped back to, to Steve Zahn's house in Kentucky. And uh, just it was just a magical about 48 hour period of time where uh, a great idea met, uh, you know, met uh, people who were excited about it. And uh, and I should note, I want to be clear about this, too. It wasn't just about a celebration. It also raised money. Uh, the jerseys that we wore, uh, the VIP session, the autograph session, they all benefited a charity called Noticeability, uh, which uh, which serves students who have dyslexia. And uh, and three of the four wonders have, have uh, battled with dyslexia uh, in their in their and their youth and in their careers. Uh, and and so this is something that was very near and dear to them. And so the opportunity to, to you know do that. Uh, made it even better. We were able to raise over twenty five thousand uh, dollars for the, for the charity through the event. So very very proud of that. And as we've mentioned a few times here, the actual movie, the band is from Erie, Pennsylvania. Um, that's the obvious tie in here. But for people who don't know Erie very well, like I'm from Massachusetts, people quote Goodwill Hunting to me all the time because you know that's just what people do. That's what people think of Boston for example. Um, for Erie, I think that's what a lot of people think of, is that movie. What kind of status does the actual film, that thing you do, have in the city of Erie? People are really proud of it. Uh, I, you know, I think it was described to me that Erie is like another character in the movie, uh, because some of the, the pivotal moments early in the movie are, are staged in places that are recognizable. Even though it wasn't filmed in Erie, they mentioned you know, Mercyhurst College, which is Mercyhurst University locally. 
uh, that where where the where the wonders want a talent show. There's a there's a Italian restaurant called Villa Pianos that everyone assumes is is Serafini's, which is out near the airport. Uh, there is um, you know there's a shot the opening scene of the movie uh, that uh, is um, again you know meant to be in Erie but was filmed in Orange County, California. Uh, that uh, that you know shows what is our main drag in town, State Street, and you can see the historic Boston store clock. You can see a small shop on the side of the road that's called the uh, you know the Erie Indemnity Exchange, which is Erie Insurance, which has now grown to be a Fortune 500 company. All these little small tidbits we all take pride. And uh, one of the great moments uh, we were watching the movie after the game uh, was anytime something that came up that was eerie centric, whether it was the Mercyhurst talent show, uh, or, or Steve Zahn saying, Hey, you gotta be quick with me. I'm from Erie PA. The place just roared. I mean, it was, it was so, so amazing to kind of be there sharing that moment with so many people from, from Erie, Pennsylvania, and some people coming to experience Erie for the first time, but, uh, it was really a, it was really a moment to just soak in. Yeah, and following up on that, I mean, the movie is obviously important to the people of Erie, Pennsylvania, but it's also important to a lot of people around the country, around the world. Uh, you know, it's gathered quite a following in these 25 years. And since you were the only venue to have a official 25th anniversary celebration, uh, you know, what kind of uh, fan response did you get, you know, not from your day-to-day uh, fan base, but from all around the country, people who said, wow, I have to go to Erie, Pennsylvania, to see this particular thing happen. Yeah, we had we had visitors from twenty different states, uh, so we had a pretty pretty good turnout from outside of Erie, Pennsylvania. And and keep in mind, yeah, that that number might have been a lot higher if we had greater capacity to serve those folks in in a couple of our special experiences. So like our VIP session and our autograph session both sold out in the first twenty four hours. And and you know we had announced this thing I don't know probably about six seven weeks before the actual event date. So. So, uh, yeah, I think I think yeah, it definitely is something that resonated with people. Social media told us everything we needed to know, which is, you know, people people engaging with the actors, people engaging with the teams, people who contacted us who said, look, I can't be here. I have something else that's important in my life where I can't travel because of you know, COVID restrictions, or whatever it might have been uh, saying. How can I get a how can I get a jersey? How can I you know, how can I? You know, get a question in for the Q and A session. Uh, people wanted to be a part of this, and it wasn't just eerie. There, were, there were a lot of folks who this movie has been important to them for one reason or another. Uh, I heard stories about how uh, this was a you know the first movie that uh, a woman's father uh, uh, took her to, and you know, and that's that's a memory that she has that's really important to her as life goes on. It's become more important to her. Uh, you know, some of the folks I heard say, look, I picked up the instrument because, you know, because I saw this movie and it was something that, uh, that I wanted to try. So uh, it's, it's a movie that I think over time has, um, has, has really held up and it's a feel good movie, even though I know, I know the band breaks up in the end, spoiler alert, <laughs> you haven't seen it in 25 <laughs> years. Uh, even though that's the case, it's still sort of this um, feel good that, that, you know, the amazing can happen. You know, one day you can be playing in your garage and in a very, very short time, you can be on television playing for millions of people. And, you know, it, and sometimes sometimes just when, you know, preparation meets opportunity, good things can happen. And so, so I think that that message of, of hope has resonated with a lot of folks uh, who you know still hold the movie dear all these years later. 
Yeah. And I, I think a lot of that just really came together really well this year, like you were saying, that that message of hope when we could all use it in 2020 and 2021. So I guess my next question is when you do have a, an event that is this success, successful and does have you know such close ties to the community, I know it's early days. This just happened over the weekend. But is there talk about bringing this back? Is this going to become a yearly thing or is it something you kind of keep special and, and in its own place and tied to a, an anniversary like this one was? Well, it's certain, certainly something that's been suggested to us. It's certainly something we've considered. Uh, I will tell you that I think there's a certain um, lightning in a bottle to what we've done, a certain magic that uh, I think that I think we might be able to uh, take this and, and build upon it. But I think the first time you do it and having sort of the stars aligned in the way that they, they did, uh, I think there's a magic there that would be very, very difficult to repeat. Uh, we have talked about the possibility of playing a game uh, as the wonders every year. We would we need would need to go back to Playtone to make sure they they support that idea. Uh, we've also talked about well, you know, okay, maybe we did the 25th. Maybe we need to prepare for the 30th, uh, and and you know and and just do it less often, but but you know do it on a larger scale. Uh, I think the one thing for us that has left us feeling um, a little empty is not the right word, right? but but just incomplete was that late in the process, uh, uh, Ethan Embry, uh, you know, the, who plays a TV player in the movie, uh, yeah, Ethan uh, wasn't able to make the trip. He was planning, we had him, we had him scheduled to be here all the way up uh, till the end. And he is, uh, he's shooting on a series uh, and that series has, um, has a couple of uh, older actresses uh, and, and uh, there are some health you know, concerns in terms of uh, their ability to to get vaccinated and so they have very strict protocols associated with it and, and so as a result of that and, and the shooting schedule changing uh, we weren't able to get him here uh, but we were able to have him participate in uh, the, the panel discussion via zoom so he participated but he's still never been to Erie and so uh, you know when I say it sort of feels I guess a little um, incomplete is because until Ethan Embry gets to Erie, I'm not sure we've done our job. So, so, you know, so maybe there's an opportunity for us to do something in the future where Ethan comes to town. Uh, you know, any of the guys who came already who were available, make the trip. I mean, maybe with Tyler who played an important role in it uh, could, could be here. So there, there definitely are places we can go with it. We just, we want to make sure that it stays special. Those memories remain. Uh, and that if we're going to do something again, that we are, we're, we're true to the movie and we're true to our community. Yeah, definitely want to get Ethan Embry out there to have the true full band reunion. But thinking even bigger, you talked about the stars aligning. Uh, you know, what about the biggest star? This was uh, Tom Hanks' directorial debut, uh, this movie. And, uh, you know, by all accounts, you know, he's what, America's dad, America's grandfather, super nice guy. He's been in baseball movies. Yeah, why not get uh, old Tom Hanks out to the ballpark? You know, I know the guys, uh, the guys absolutely threw it out there to – uh, to both Tom, uh, Colin Hanks actually was in the movie at a small, small bit in the movie. Um, Tom's, Tom's wife, Rita Wilson uh, was in the movie. So no, I, I think it's very possible that we could, that we could go there. Uh, I, I'm not sure if that happens on the 26th anniversary or whether it needs to be the <laughs> the, the 30th, but I uh, know we definitely go there, but I will tell you that Tom, uh, Tom was supportive of this. Uh, Tom actually donated a couple of items to be a part of the auction. Uh, a couple of cool things. He, he had signed a, um, a copy of the original motion picture soundtrack. And so we were able to auction that off. Uh, and then he also had provided a, a jersey uh, from a, a ballpark tour that he had taken in celebration of his 50th birthday. It's a Playtone jersey and has a patch on the sleeve that says all the ballparks that they went to. Uh, and this is, this is literally right out of Tom Hanks's closet. 
uh, and and that you know that that raised money as well. So we, we can't say enough nice things about Tom, the folks at Playtone for their support of this, uh, and then the actors. I mean, they they were just remarkable. Jonathan Sheck and and Steve Zahn and, um, and Tom Everett Scott. Uh, anything that we asked them to do in support of either promoting the movie uh, or or you know getting it right. One of, one of the things that was crazy is this movie you know came out in 1996. And you think back to 1996 and, you know, things were just, they were different, you know, photos weren't digital, uh, you know, logos were still produced with logo slicks. There are things like that. A lot of, a lot of listeners might not even know what a logo slick is, but, but things were done differently. We literally had to recreate logos uh, and graphics for this movie because we didn't have what was needed because they, they just, you know, they, some of the things originally were hand painted, hand sewn, um, you know, and so, there was a lot of work that was done just to kind of, you know, kind of get to square one. <laughs> so, uh, but we're, we're glad we were able to do it. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, if, if Tom Hanks ever wants to make his way back to Erie, Pennsylvania, I, that, that was actually the inspiration for the movie. He had, he had passed through, he had stopped and, uh, on, on, on his way along a way. And I think he had gone to a, a local festival and just kind of had a warm, fuzzy feeling about Erie. And that ended up, you know, putting us in a movie eventually. Well, there you have it. Tom Hanks, if you're listening and and we know you are pretty sure he is better than that, better than uh, average shot that he is. I know he likes this podcast. Make it out to Erie PA for the next edition of Wonders Night. But in the meantime, uh, congrats, Greg Coleman, president of the Erie Seawolves uh, on such a great, impactful, fun night at the ballpark during a season, which has been tough to really pull off these premier promotions. So, uh, you know, congrats on getting it done. And thanks for taking the time to speak with us about it on the show before the show podcast. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. I also want to give a quick shout out to the Seawolf staff. They worked their tails off to put this together and they deserve all the credit. Absolutely. Well, huge thanks to uh, to Greg Coleman and the Erie Seawolves uh, and such a fun interview, such a fun conversation and a promotion that I very much wish that I would have just made the trip uh, to go see. But it's funny, I actually had uh, two friends who traveled to Erie. One of them is from Erie originally, but two friends who traveled to Erie for that promotion and were sending me pictures and stuff of uh, of the wonders of uh, Lenny and uh, and Guy and Jimmy on the field. Uh, I will not give you their real names. Tom Everett Scott and and Steve's on and, and all of them. It doesn't matter. They, they're, they're the, they're the, the wonders to us. And the only thing that matters is uh, honoring their tremendous one hit status from the mid 1960s in a fictional movie. So with that, we're going to move on to three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show in which Sam and I discuss uh, three big topics across the world of minor league baseball. And we are getting closer and closer to the return of postseason play in the minor leagues. Playoff procedures are going to look a little bit different here in 2021. But we already have some teams. The uh, Fresno Grizzlies uh, qualified as the uh, top team right now in the low A West League. And we've got uh, all kinds of various clinchings across the minor. Sam, for strike one this week, tell us about what the the minor league postseason picture is going to look like here in 2021 and uh, some of the teams that we will be seeing in it. Yeah, so this has been around for a a while or it's been out there for a while. But just to give everybody a refresher because we are – uh, coming in on the closing days of the minor league season. And um, some of these games really have, you know, like big heft in terms of clinching playoff spots. Uh, so uh, it's not your usual minor league postseason that shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. We've talked about the AAA final stretch before. 
Uh, so just as a refresher on that, the AAA regular season has essentially been extended two weeks, uh, but those final two weeks are going to be a postseason tournament in their own right. Uh, teams will be playing uh, one home series you know, at their place, another series on the road. Uh, whoever has the best record is going to be determined the, the AAA final stretch winner. Um, so that's kind of its own thing. One thing to point out about that. Uh, is that those games actually count as regular season games for stats purposes. So if you're following some of the minor league stats races like we've been doing uh, for much of the summer, just know that that uh, what you do in a AAA final stretch game actually counts towards your regular season stats. For the other leagues in AA, high A, and low A, um, a lot of these leagues have divisions. And normally divisions have mattered in the past. We've even had first half, second half division champions to kind of beef out the postseason, that's not happening this year. They're trying to limit travel because of COVID and, and trying to make sure everybody's going to stay safe. So the each league is only going to have two representatives in the playoffs. That's going to essentially be the finals uh, straight away. So it doesn't matter what division you're in. It could be, let's, I have the low AE standings up, for example. Um, there's three divisions in that group. Doesn't matter. You know, one division winner is not going to be participating in this postseason that uh, we could have two teams from the same division uh, for all we know. It looks like Charleston's is going to be going to that there. They have 77 wins. Nobody else in the league has more than 67. There's a little bit of a race to get to that second spot, but uh, yeah, it, it's only going to be two teams in the postseason. So that's something to keep an eye on uh, as we come down to the, the wire here. It might be kind of cool if your favorite high A, low A, double A team clinches its own division, doesn't make the playoffs. You can determine whether that means something to you or not. I've talked to players recently who they they care about this. They care about this every year, uh, making the playoffs, making a push for a ring. If you're going to play an entire summer, you want it to feel like it was it was for something beyond just personal development. Uh, you want that team success as well. Uh, for example, I know I was talking to Tristan Cass uh, in the Red Sox organization. Portland is going right up to the wire right now uh, in Double A Northeast. Right now, they sit three games behind Somerset. Uh, so we'll see how that's going to go. I know Bowie is also in that race. Akron is in that race in the other division. So some real close ones. Be, check out the standings, but just know how things are shaking out in the division won't matter so much. Uh, we've had two teams clinch their own postseason spots recently. Uh, Quad Cities in the high A Central. They are the Kansas City Royals affiliate and low A Fresno in the Rocky system. Uh, a team I feel like we've talked about a decent amount this year, led by Zach Bean, but also Drew Romo has done a really good job there for the Grizzlies. Um, so keep an eye out for them in low A West when they eventually make their playoff push here in a couple of weeks. But yeah, lots of races coming right down to the wire. And just know, again, it's only two teams that are making it in each league. Yeah, which has made it a little bit easier for us to uh, suss out what the playoff field is going to look like, but obviously eliminate some of the drama and postseason races. Um, strike two this week, Sam. We're seeing some promotions uh, both to the major leagues and guys climbing the ranks in the minors as September arrives. Josh Lowe is up in the major league level now. Um, Ronnie Mauricio is uh, headed up to double A, the New York Mets prospect, uh, who will rejoin some of those top prospects um, in the double uh, A Binghamton lineup. But let's start with Josh Lowe in the Rays organization, Tampa Bay's outfield prospect who heads up the big leagues. He's 23 years old, the 13th overall selection back in 2016. Um, give us a little preview of what we'll see from him. And then for Ronnie Mauricio going up to double A, we'll talk about that as well. Yeah, so Josh Lowe um, got called up yesterday. He's the number 76 overall prospect. 
reason for that being Randy Arizarena uh, is going on the paternity list. He's expected to be back, I think, before Saturday. I think Saturday might be like the latest he can actually return. So uh, one, one thing in speaking to Rays officials this summer, actually, one thing I kept bringing up with them is like, shouldn't Josh Lowe probably be getting his major league debut already? And they said, yeah, if we, if we had spot in the outfield, I'm sure he would have gotten that opportunity. Uh, they just didn't like the Rays really like what they have in an outfield core right now with Arizona, with Austin Meadows, with Kevin Kiermeyer, uh, even Brett Phillips, uh, who's a little bit of a cult hero, certainly on this podcast and anybody who's enjoyed minor league baseball over the last couple of years, but also baseball in his is fun. Tampa Bay. Yeah. Baseball is fun. Uh, check out Brett Phillips baseball is fun gear that he is now selling. Not that he's sponsoring this podcast, but you know, I just want to throw he it probably would. He probably would. We should reach out to him. Maybe the we should, we should. Uh, he does have a day job right now, but maybe we can get in touch <laughs> with him. But, um, but seriously, like it, also Manuel Margot on that team, like they really like their defensive outfield right now. And Josh Lowe actually plugs in very well to that. He was drafted as a, th- as an infielder, I think he played a little bit of shortstop in high school. They played him at third base. Uh, but his skill set, he's incredibly athletic. He's really fast, uh, works well in the outfield. Um, so they moved him to center field. He actually made his debut the other night in right field. He has the arm to play there. He really fits in well with that raised mix. Now, he's he's younger than anybody else in, in that that I mentioned there. Um, so that's a little bit why he got squeezed out. But I believe he was only one of nine 2020 players in the major in the minor leagues this season uh, at the time of his promotion. He was the only one to do that completely at the AAA level. Uh, there's still some questions about the strikeout rate with him. He, every stop he's made, he struck out at least 25% of the time. What's going to happen when he goes up against major league pitching? We'll have to keep an eye out on that. Can he hit enough to make the rest make the most of the rest of his tools? Because his power is above average. His run tools is plus, like I mentioned, the defensive skills are good enough to be an everyday player. Uh, right now, it's just finding a spot for him in St. Pete. Arizona going on the paternity list creates that for now. When he comes back, I'm sure Lowe's going to go right back to Durham because of that AAA final stretch. He'll be able to play out there the rest of the way. But, you know, if, if there are any additional injuries, Phillips is currently on the IL with an ankle issue. Uh, any more Injury issues in the outfield. I, I don't think the Rays will be at all scared of bringing Low back up. And uh, who knows? Like we look, we saw last year Christian Pache uh, helping out the Braves in a tough spot when they had some injury issues in the outfield, and he went from not playing at all during the regular season to a regular contributor in the playoffs. To Low be that version for the Rays this year, we'll see. Um, but the skill set is certainly there for him to at least be a fourth outfielder moving forward. I think he'll hit enough to do more than that, just because the other skills are loud enough. Uh, and you mentioned Ronnie Mauricio going to double A real quick. I'm just going to shout that out as well. Uh, Mauricio, the number 56 overall prospect in the game. If you ever get to, a chance to watch him play, he's going to stand out on any field. He stands at six foot three. He's listed at 166. I can tell you he's a lot more than 166. He's really filled out well. Um, he has a, a good power tool, good strong arm. Some questions about whether he'll stick at shortstop long term. I think just because he is kind of big, he has that O'Neill Cruz problem of being a little too big for the position, but we are in the age of bigger shortstops, so he can make that work. He certainly has the arm for it, uh, but the power played at Brooklyn, it is difficult to hit home runs at Coney Island. He hit 19 in hundred games this year. Um, some issues with the hit tool. He only hit 242, had an OBP of 290, uh, but he's still young coming up. He, he turned 20 in April. So this is completely his age 20 season, getting him the small taste of double A where he'll likely start 2022, I think is important for both him and the Mets to kind of allow him 
to, to get a taste of that level, see how things go uh, before, you know, he really tries to climb it and conquer it next year. But good switch hitter. Uh, all the tools are, are there. He just needs the experience and continue to get that. And now he's getting a taste of the upper minors for the first time. And strike three this week. Yesterday, a very cool day in the world of baseball. The National Baseball Hall of Fame welcomed four new members. Uh, Marvin Miller, a non-playing role, obviously, for uh, one of the uh, greatest labor leaders in uh, American sports history. And then Ted Simmons, uh, Larry Walker, and uh, Derek Jeter, who gave three terrific addresses uh, to those assembled in Cooperstown yesterday. Ted Simmons, how cool was it listening to Ted Simmons and everything that he had to say to kick off that event yesterday with his speech? But um, one of the things that I loved is those guys kind of singling out their time in the minor leagues. Um, Larry Walker listed off every town that he played in uh, in the minor leagues or that he called home, at least in the minor leagues. Uh, Ted Simmons touched on his time in the minor leagues. Derek Jeter, we know his time was somewhat limited in minor league baseball. And Ted Simmons was kind of the same way. Um, but Sam, when we look at the importance of what minor league baseball provides, especially to these young players, yesterday was a cool day to, to reflect on all that. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I do really appreciate uh, that you know, both Jeter and Walker brought up their time in the minor leagues. I know a couple of years ago when Ted Simmons was first elected uh, by committee to the hall, I got to ask him about his time in the minors. And he said, you know, I, I stormed through the minors. I, I hit everywhere and I hit everything. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until I made the majors until I was really humbled. And that that's kind of telling in its own way. Uh, we talk so much about the minor leagues being a place where you can set a foundation and that's great. Uh, and for Simmons, I think it was where he kind of really proved to himself as a teenager that he could play in pro ball. Uh, there wasn't the system that is set up now. Like, I don't think people were out there ranking high school prospects back in Ted Simmons time in the way they are now. So you didn't really know where you shook out. You got a bonus. You, you could probably compare that to others and, and stuff of that measure. But Ted Simmons finding out very quickly that he could be a major leaguer. This was not some pipe dream of him signing. Uh, and him proving that at every stop in the minor leagues is certainly noteworthy as well. Jeter, you know, he, like you mentioned, Tyler, he climbed to the majors pretty quickly, uh, debuting at 20 years old, uh, which if that happened now, we'd be talking about him as a phenom. You think of Juan DeFranco uh, debuting this year. Derek Jeter was around the same age when he came up. But I remember reading reports about him when he was going through the, you know, the lower minors. He was really struggling defensively. And I know some of you might it. He's saying at home, well, maybe that didn't change when he made the majors, but uh, his work defensively was really raw. He really needed to find himself uh, there at the lower levels and learn that basic skill. Uh, and that is what helped fuel him. Obviously, the bat got him to the majors as quickly as it did, but uh, that's what set the groundwork for what ended up being a guy who was the captain of a five-time World Series winner. Uh, we can't just overlook that, and he mentioned it in his speech he brought up specifically Gary Denbo, who now leads both scouting and player development for the Marlins, who happened to be, you know, owned in part by Derek Jeter because he really got on Jeter about learning the fundamentals, learning that side of the game, making sure you're doing those small things right and well. And that is where you grow and become a, a good player because Jeter was a sixth overall pick in 1992. Like he had a pretty good idea of how good he was um, coming in coming into pro ball, but I think he really gave a hard thought to uh, going to Michigan, playing college ball. And then he, he came to the minors, hit well, but defended poorly, needed to take those lumps to build that eventual Hall of Fame career. And Larry Walker, 
Tyler, I'm going to let you take Larry Walker because you have a much closer relationship and connection with him than I do. But I just love that story, if you haven't seen it, of Larry Walker talking about his time with the Utica Blue Sox and how there was one moment where here's this guy coming from British Columbia, Canada. Um, not that that changes anything, but just, you know, he, he played a lot of hockey growing up. Uh, he was really gifted as a baseball player, but uh, was still learning the basic rules of the game, it felt like, when he entered the minors. And uh, there was a hit and run on. He was speeding around second base, realized the ball was going to be caught. So he just cut across the pitcher's mound and went back to first, clearly beat out the throw, got tagged and was called out. And he was like, what are you talking about? I was here. I was safe. It's getting so angry at, at the umpire. His manager turned to him and was like, Larry, you're out. And he said, uh, what are you talking about? What's going on? He didn't know that you have to go back and tag the bag. Said he argued with his first base coach, too. Yeah, his first base coach was his manager. And his, the manager was George Brett's brother, of all people. This is not somebody who's just like, it was, you know, Ken Brett, who also went to the esteemed Boston University, I would say. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's those guys all sharing their minor league stories either yesterday or in the past. is just a reminder of anytime you go to a minor league ball game, uh, there could be a Hall of Famer there. It doesn't necessarily yeah. need to be a top prospect. It doesn't necessarily – uh, need to be, you know, one of the bigger names that we're talking about on the show all the time, but the work they are putting in behind the scenes or in front of you in games is what establishes that foundation for guys to eventually make Cooperstown and, and for guys to look back on that time and remember it fondly is, is really, really special, but yeah, Tyler, take it away on Larry Walker. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too. Um, you know, the, I don't want to say vast majority, but I would say a majority of baseball fans or people who attend major league games, um, they probably think of the minor leagues in sort of an abstract sense. Um, and it's not something that a lot of people focus on. Now, obviously, we're on a, a different side of things and we're very in tune with the, the community of fans that are way into minor league baseball and into prospects and all that type of stuff. But I think year after year when we see these hall of famers get elected uh, and you guys have always done such a great job, Sam, when you go to the, the induction uh, ceremony or you go to the, you know, the announcement of who's been elected, all that type of stuff, uh, that press conference, you guys have always done such a great job of uncovering just how those guys who have been elected to the hall of fame feel about their time in the minor leagues. Um, and for, you know, somebody like Larry Walker, it's a guy who did not play baseball, did not focus on baseball until he was 16 years old. And now he's in the hall of fame. Uh, a guy who really for the majority of his life has always told everybody he considered himself to be a better hockey player than he was a baseball player. Um, and it didn't work out in hockey and he ends up devoting himself to baseball. And um, yeah, I mean, you point out, you know, it was a young kid from British Columbia who I believe when he was playing in Utica uh, was 19 or 20 uh, and yeah, had not figured out all of the rules of this game yet. He'd actually played a ton more softball in his life than he played baseball until he was in his mid teens. Um, but the thing that I like, that he said during his induction speech yesterday is that story is a story that he always tells kids um, to this day. And Larry Walker has done a ton with baseball Canada, um, helping out with junior national teams and with uh, the professional level national teams um, as a hitting coach. And, you know, just kind of a confidant, a guy who, you know, now becomes the first Canadian position player in the hall of fame and just the second Canadian ever after Fergie Jenkins. But, he still relays that story to tell kids 
it's okay to screw up. You just got to keep at it. You got to keep working. You got to keep learning because you see what hard work can do. Now, obviously it requires a, a ton of talent as well, but um, that was pretty amazing. And obviously for, for those of us uh, who grew up getting a chance to watch Larry Walker, he embodied a lot of true greatness and to do it, as an athlete who did not focus on a sport where he was later elected to the hall of fame, you know, 30 years later, 35 years later, uh, after he started devoting himself to that sport is pretty incredible. And, um, it was really neat getting a chance to see all those guys, you know, telling their stories and, um, the, the intensity of, uh, the fans who were there, you could feel from home. Uh, I think how grateful everybody was to be there, to be doing an induction ceremony, to be in Cooperstown. That was really neat yesterday. I thought it was really cool to see, you know, a very heavily 98% Yankees tilted crowd giving Ted Simmons and Marvin Miller and Larry Walker standing ovations, uh, as they were announced and as they gave their speeches and all that, it was just a really cool moment yesterday. It was a, it was a very good day to be a baseball fan. Now, why it was on a Wednesday afternoon after school has started, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> that, uh, it was a, it was a very cool day and a very cool moment. I feel like part of that might've been to discourage folks from going in large numbers. It could be too. Uh, and just, yeah. and also just buying a little extra time uh, when they were initially planning this out. Right. We do we're live in a very better, strange or, time. Yeah. There, there's there really not a good time to, to do this right now. Uh, not that I'm saying it was a bad time. I'm, I'm just saying uh, if you're going to do it, like when they were planning it out for 2021, I don't, I don't know if they, there could have been a time where it'd be like, yes, that makes sense. Right. Um, and even to do it in September, they did it enough as it is. Right. Right. Every, everything is weird in 2021. That is the truth. I'm glad That's... they got their day literally in the sun. Uh, it rained yeah. a little bit during June, but it looked like a fantastic day in Cooperstown. Um, and so congratulations to the four inductees in uh, the National Baseball Hall of Fame's class of 2020. Nobody, of course, elected in the class of 2021. So now we move on to uh, to 2022. And uh, that'll do it for three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. We're back to wrap it up next. this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of ghosts of the miners now here's your correspondent and host joshua jackson welcome back to ghosts of the miners in which all of you out there in radio land must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. One was rock steady. With the others, you're on shaky ground. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Brookline Ironworkers. B. The Bremerton Stitchers. C. The Bassett Furniture Makers. Grab a stool and sit down because C, the Bassett Furniture Makers, crafted a reputation in the Bi-State League in the second half of the 1930s. When to be Bassett-based was to be part of a southwestern Virginia town built on building furniture. Bassett Furniture Industries, still operating today, was founded in 1902 and by 35 the Berg was ready for a miners ball club. 
The furniture makers would have been champions in their first season after winning a second-half title had Bassett not been beset by bountiful batting by Danville in the championship series. With the Leafs leafing the furniture makers in the dust with 11 runs in one game and 28 in another during the seven-game set. Having established that benchmark right away, <laughs> the furniture makers made something even greater of themselves in the seasons to come. Whenever their catcher went into his couch or crouch, the team had a leg to stand on, playing with nearly unmatched sophistication through the rest of the decade. As a Yankees affiliate in 1936 and 1937, Bassett won its first of three straight titles, scooting to the second with the help of Phil Rizzuto. Holy cow! After playing in the Dodgers farm system in 1940, the furniture makers busted up in 1941, when the Bi-State League struggled to get a season off the ground. When they did so, Bassett was left behind. The Kannapolis Daily Independent reported that another team and the furniture makers were dropped on the table without a murmur. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these well-clothed clubs played in a major city in the minor leagues? A. The San Francisco Knickerbockers. B. The St. Louis Trouser Wearers. C. The Denver Dungarees. Want to know the answer? Check your great-grandparents' wardrobe. Or tune into the next Ghosts of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill is umping a game in the 1948 World Series, and he's beginning to squeeze Bob Lemon. Saying goodbye on this week's episode of the show before the show, but before we do, a few weeks remaining in the minor league regular season and then on into the postseason, and MILB.TV is where you can catch it all. Sam, what are you watching on MILB TV this weekend? Yeah, so the ones I, I have my eye on is uh, Binghamton at Portland. We talked about in the last segment, Ronnie Mauricio will be making his double-A debut. Uh, Going to be really fascinated to see how he transitions to double-A, even in this very short span as a switch hitter, um, see how they're going to play him. We'll see how... Uh, things go there, but uh, they're playing at Portland. Uh, and Tristan Cassis is a story I wrote last week. Uh, he hit five homers over a three game span is actually technically a two day span because two of those homers or three of those homers came in on a double header on Friday. Uh, so he seems to have really turned the power on uh, since coming back from the Olympics before that he had only one homer in his last 20 games. When I talked to him, he said, I am, I'm not really doing anything differently. Uh, they just, seemed to give me the right pitches to hit and I drove them and I'm going to try to keep this going. Uh, unfortunately, he hasn't had a chance to really keep that going ever since because of some postponements, uh, both due to weather and to COVID protocols. But Tristan Cassis, when he takes the field next, I'm going to be really interested to see how the, he can keep this going because, you know, when I ask like, what do you do to maintain this? And he says, uh, just keep on doing this. Like I haven't adjusted anything to make this happen. It tells me that he just has the natural talent. Uh, to turn on the power switch whenever he can and, and really drive pitches. So uh, if I, I'm a Red Sox fan, I know Bobby Dahlbeck is doing really well right now uh, at the major league level. But before that, everybody kind of assumed Cassis would be the future of the first base position. If this turns into Dahlbeck's really good and the way he's turned things around here uh, in August and September, and Cassis continues to have a lot of Jeff Fuel in his profile, that is, will be a great problem uh, for the Red Sox to have in 2022. So get a taste of that this weekend when Binghamton travels to Portland 
uh, on MILB.TV. Tyler, what do you have your eye on? Yeah, I'm going to the uh, the Battle of the Volunteer State in Tennessee, where the Memphis Redbirds are on the road visiting the Nashville Sounds. And uh, Nolan Gorman has been fantastic as of late uh, in the St. Louis Cardinals organization at AAA. He's the number 25 overall prospect in baseball. And uh, Gorman, you know, that first month when he got promoted from AA Springfield uh, to AAA Memphis, kind of trying to figure out that AAA level. He batted 245 with a 696 OPS in July. Uh, in August, he hit 316 with a 926 OPS. And so far in September, he is at 379 with a 1056 OPS. Nolan Gorman has definitely uh, gotten it figured out, if not still getting it figured out. Um, he's been really impressive. And uh, those two teams, neighbors of, uh, of a sort in uh, now AAA East, are uh, scoring off this weekend on MILB.TV. So that will do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. Uh, he's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Vaughn. We'll talk to you next week. Uh,